For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Happy Earth Day, everyone. How are you going to celebrate the magic of our natural world today? Well, Earth Day every day, Earth Month. But Earth Day officially is the 22nd of April. So what are you going to do to connect with nature? Are you going to go shopping? (laughs) That sounds ridiculous, right? And yet, you've no doubt noticed that more and more brands are trying to use Earth Day, this important calendar moment, to sell us stuff. And I want to push back on that. Why does everything have to be a commercial marketing opportunity? I'm over it. Now, I'm all for green initiatives, and I I do genuinely support and get excited about companies that are doing bold things in sustainability. And I think we should support them, and discussing all that has huge value. But that's not what Earth Day is about. It's not about shopping. So this Earth Day, I'm going to challenge you to put your feet in the grass or the ocean and your credit cards away. Actually, unless um, there is a proviso there. Unless you're going to use it to donate to an environmental charity, that's a good thing to do for Earth Day. But no, let's make Earth Day about communing with the trees and the birds and the insects and the animals, about raising your voice for better government policy to protect nature and biodiversity, to preserve our wild places and to act on climate. Do you, do you know the story of how it all began? It was actually in America, in the US. It was back in 1970 when they had the first Earth Day. And it was the idea of a bunch of college students and an American senator by the name of Gaylord Nelson. And the whole idea was to stage a nationwide grassroots demonstration on behalf of Mother Earth. Why? Well, at the time, there was just incredible pollution. I always remember reading that in some parts of LA, simply breathing the air was the equivalent of smoking two packs of cigarettes in a day. And there's stories about rivers being so polluted by industrial runoff and companies dumping their crap into them that they actually caught fire, burst into flames. And these effects on the environment were being felt all through the US. And so a huge number of Americans, they reckon it was one in 10 took part in those first Earth Day activations across the country. I love that. It just shows the power of community action and how people really can get together to stand up for things like Mother Earth. I love it. I also love the idea of Mother Earth and the feminine. I think it's amazing. So no apologies for that. But today, Earth Day is, of course, a global event. And organisers reckon that a billion people in more than 193 countries take part in activations around the world. Now, each year they have a theme, and actually in 2022, it's all about investment. So it does have a business element. They say when it comes to climate change, money talks, and it's all about the kind of public-private partnerships and building the green economy. Okay, fine. That's the official line this year. But for me, it isn't that. It, It just That just feels very removed from how I feel about Earth Day, which is about finding or fostering our personal connection to nature so that we can be better stewards or the best stewards that we possibly can. What is it for you? For me, it's trees. I'm absolutely in love with trees. I think I'm getting obsessed with them, more and more obsessed every day. I think that they are the most intriguing 
I'm going to say beings. I feel like there's a spirit in a tree. Actually, I read this really lovely thing. I'll find it and share it on on socials the other day about scientists discovering that trees have the equivalent, obviously it's not a heart, but something like a heartbeat, similar to the human heartbeat, albeit much more slowly. But in a tree, this systematic beat is actually pumping water through the tree. Isn't that gorgeous? I want to learn so much more about them. And so I'm really happy that this week's guest is going to help us do that. He has nothing to sell us, but a good story and a bucket load of inspiration about trees. He is Dr. Greg Moore, an Aussie who calls himself a plant mechanic. Now, Greg started as a lecturer in plant science and arboriculture at the University of Melbourne's Burnley campus back in 1979. And I mentioned Burnley because it's interesting, it's famous for teaching and research about urban horticulture. And Greg's held several positions there over the years. He's also the chair of something called the Committee for the National Trust of Victoria's Register of Significant Trees. And I only just discovered these things a few a few months ago. But essentially... Anyone in Australia in different states can apply to have a particular tree registered as important and they choose the ones, you'll hear all about it, but that have cultural significance or rarity or historic significance. And it's so lovely. And I've been going around looking for particular registered trees in my state, in New South Wales, in Sydney. So I love this so much. We recorded it in Melbourne, where I was recently. I'd invited Greg to meet me at the Royal Botanic Gardens on a Monday afternoon, just to tell me some stories about trees. I didn't think he'd say yes, and he did. I'm so grateful to him. He's the greatest. You're going to really enjoy this walk in the park with Greg Moore. So you can go shopping tomorrow. Today, more trees, please. (laughs) More trees, please. I'm going to call this episode that. Now, remember to let us know your feedback. I love it when you leave us a rating and review if you listen in Apple Podcasts. And of course, I'm always so grateful when you share about the show on social media. I'm on Instagram at Mrs. Press and at The Wardrobe Crisis. And if you love this and you want more treesperation, is that a word? Should be. This time last year, we ran a fantastic conversation with Nicole Rycroft from Canopy Planet. And we'll share a link to that one in the show notes, which of course live at thewardrobecrisis.com. Oh, one more thing. We're actually going on holiday next week. We'll take a break, but we'll be back for another fab new interview on May the 4th. But now, let's go for a walk with Greg Moore. The wind's just picked up. Welcome to this special outdoor edition of the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Greg Moore. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here, Claire. Where are we? We're in the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne. It's a lovely afternoon, if a little windy, and you'll probably hear that in the background. I think people will let us off. I said to you before, this is ostensibly a fashion podcast, albeit one whereby I often run away on tangents that have nothing to do with clothes. And this episode is going to be all about trees. But I said... Is there a fashion angle? And you said, well, yes. Yeah, I mean, horticulture and particularly gardens like this have always been subjected to fads and fashions. There have been many fads and many fashions that have come and gone, but one of the obvious ones was the uh, era of the fern. So how many of the gardens of this era, you know, going back to the 1800s, have a fern gully or a fern house? Uh, Palm trees were sort of a a dramatic statement uh, planting of the 1800s, early 1920s. And of course, in uh, both New South Wales and Victoria, areas were widely planted. 
You said to me that there is a tree behind us. What's it called? It's one of the Araucarias, one of the relatives of the Woolamai pine. And, and these were widely planted in the late 1800s through to about uh, 1920. They were almost a status symbol. So if you wanted to show that you're up to date in botany, that you understood where the uh, British Empire was at, all of those sorts of things, you planted Araucarias. They're a splendid tree and we have several native species of them. And they're, they're quite accessible. So you'll find them in old uh, housing estates and you'll find them in some of the major parks and gardens. Then again, if you want to look at the more recent fashions, of course, uh, native plants of the 1970s were planted in streets and people's gardens. Then they went out of fashion for another 20 years and they came back in fashion uh, probably around uh, 2000 and 2010. We are outside and you can hear background, lovely atmosphere actually, you can hear we're next to an ornamental lake and that's why you can hear water in the background. You can hear the trees, there's a breeze, it's a bit windy, but you can hear the rustling of the leaves, which I like. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's very restful. It's interesting because when we're talking about fashion, our audience thinks we mean clothes, but of course it just means the trends of the time or it can mean that. And of course that happened in gardens and plants. Yes, and still does. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting if you think about the plants that your grandmother perhaps was interested in. You know, who talks about aspidistras today? Lots of people don't talk about hydrangeas. So these fads and fashions have been really quite powerful influences on what people want in their gardens, how they see their gardens. Uh, And they have left an imprint because you can go around various suburbs and see the heritage of gardening in those suburbs. We're going to go for a walk here and meet some of the extraordinary plants in this garden. And I want to come back and ask you why there are oaks. So remind me to do that. But, But first of all... I want to just talk about what you do by way of introduction. I love how you call yourself a plant mechanic. Yes. Well, I'm interested in how plants work. Uh, I mean, lots of people and lots of my colleagues are obsessed with what plants are. So they're interested in naming them and the various aspects of perhaps their anatomy. But I'm more interested in in how they they work, what they do and, and how they relate to each other and how they fit into the environment. Technically, I'm a plant physiologist But a a plant mechanic is close enough. But when I think of a mechanic, I think of somebody fixing something broken. Or tinkering. It doesn't have to be broken. You want to know how it works. So if you think of an engineer, they want to know how things work. And that's what I want to do. I want to know why plants do certain things. And if you understand what the plants are made of, uh, what their structures are and what they do, then you can fix them very often if something goes wrong. You understand how they respond and how they interact. And so that's the interest that I, I particularly have. And as a consequence, I'm what's called an applied scientist. So I tend to look at problems and I tend to research things that relate to trees in a landscape and as they, uh, the trees, relate to people. How interesting, Greg, because I know about the application of that word applied to the arts and often people say, well, fashion is not an art, it's an applied art yes. or it's a craft. And they say that with a bit of a snootsiness, like, yeah, yeah. oh, it's not really art. Is that something you relate to? Oh, of course. And, and the same thing happens in science. So pure scientists uh, are often sort of up there on the pedestal as are medical scientists, for example, and rightly so. I'm a scientist after all, so I think science needs all the good press that it can get. But applied scientists tend to do things that make use of the work of the pure scientist and then apply it to the real world. Isn't that wonderful, though, because it's practically useful? Yes. Takes out the ivory tower. Exactly right. Which is so nice that we're doing this in your, basically one of your offices. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's one of the sites that I'm very familiar with. And I am very lucky. I do get 
to go out to, outdoors a lot and I get to relate to trees. So even during the uh, the lockdowns that Melbourne endured and we endured, you know, hundreds of days of them, I was able to go to the Meribyrnong River, which is near my home, regularly see my four or 500 year old river red gums, uh, do some work that I'd been putting off on those river red gums, uh, which I'll publish in a couple of years time. So I have been in a very, very privileged position to be able to interact with some great trees and some great landscapes, both natural and created. I've got so many questions. I really want to ask you about the red gums. But before we dive in, I just want to ask you to tell us about arboriculture. So I did a bit of Googling and I know that it's since ancient Greek times and ancient Egyptian times, humans have been trying to work with trees to adapt them to their needs, I guess. But I love this descriptor, which came from the Encyclopedia Britannica. But it's what kind of inspired the way I wanted to do this podcast, and I'm going to read it out. The well-being of individual plants is the major concern of arboriculture, in contrast to such related fields as civiculture and agriculture, in which the major concern is the well-being of the large group of plants as a whole. So I love this idea that you might have a relationship with an individual tree. Yes, well, that's one of the reasons why I'm involved in arboriculture. I love the idea, because I come from a botany and horticulture background, and in horticulture, you deal with the specimen, the individual plant. And in arboriculture, coming from a a horticultural tradition, we get to look at the specimen. Now, if you come from a forestry tradition, and many of the arborists in North America uh, and parts of Europe come from a forestry tradition and they they're much more interested in the population the whole if you like urban forest now i'm very interested in the urban forest but i'm also interested in the individual specimen and philosophically if you think about it if you're interested in the individual the forest is not at risk but if you're only interested in the forest the individual is at risk and if you lose enough individuals you can lose the forest So I like the fact that as an arborist, I look at the individual and the forest because I think that gives me the chance of protecting both. Wow. I was thinking about two different things there. One was that in my work, sustainability, and I know you relate, the collective is so vital and that we... We sort of fight against that, it's sort of political as well, fight against the kind of cult of the individual and the selfishness that has got us into the particular situation we find ourselves in, for example, with the environment. And yet the way you described that relationship with the individual is really beautiful and I think we can relate to that, can't we? Even if it's just that you know, I'm going to say, a tree and you love that particular tree. Yes, and look, people do and generations do. So what, what you often find is that a particular tree takes on an added status, if you like, as a symbol. And sometimes those symbols are important to a family or to a suburb or to a community. And this often catches the, uh, the engineers and the uh, politicians and the accountants of this world off guard because when they threaten such a tree, they don't expect a community reaction. And that community reaction can be really fierce. And mm. one of the reasons for that, for example, might be that the tree is not a great tree. It's just going on an ordinary street. But what happens if that tree's been there for 100 years? Various generations of different families have used it as a, a navigating point or as a, a meeting place. And so the tree has transcends its role as a simple tree. It becomes part of the community. And over and over again, um, and this is not just part of Australian culture, but in part of almost 
human cultures everywhere, you'll see that there have been protests about the removal of a, a, a single tree. And very often, the cost of the process and the retention of the tree is much greater than anyone anticipated. And you might think, well, we could have done so much more with all of those resources and all of that money. And that's true, but they've forgotten. This is symbolic. And when people do things in future, they will be different because of it. So it is worth the effort. I'm going to read something out from Nature Conservancy and ask you to comment. Trees can be the background of a favourite memory and that welcome patch of green our eyes seek as we gaze out of our windows. But while they are silent and stationary, trees hold tremendous powers, including the power to make all our lives better and healthier. What superpowers do trees have, Greg? With the younger generation, I'm an absolute optimist. You don't have to convert kids to a love of trees, and you don't have to convince kids that trees and the environment are important. They know that. They know that now. It's the older generation, my generations, and some of those that have gone before that have really lost the connection with trees and with nature. And what we've got to make sure of is that kids in cities, they do have the opportunity to interact with trees. Because if you watch them, they'll do it naturally, that you don't have to be taught. I've, I've read lots of the books and, written, and bits and pieces of how trees are so important to development of, of people. I mean, there's a whole range of psychological and medical research that says that if kids have access to treed and complex open space, uh, they develop a whole range of skills, a spatial configuration, navigation, curiosity, resilience, all of the things that you'd want your kids to have, they tend to develop them more quickly and to a higher degree if they're exposed to a complex treed open space. And by a complex treed open space, I don't mean an area of turf with the odd tree in it. I mean understory, overstory, complicated uh, ecosystems. You know, we have them in cities. Well, we have one. I mean, We've I... We've got one here. I live in Sydney. We're, as I said, recording this in Melbourne. I'm ashamed to say I've never been in this garden until today. Ah, well... It's wonderful. Yeah, Australia is really well off with our botanic gardens. Yeah, and there's apparently 10,000 different kinds of plants in the landscaped grounds around us, and 1.4 million are preserved in the herbarium, which is just across the way. And there's also a seed bank of the most important and rare plants in Victoria. Melbourne's gardens are a splendid garden. Uh, Sydney's is a splendid garden. And, and, the, and the Botanic Gardens at Sydney are beautifully located, obviously. But they're different trees here. We're going to go and look at these oaks. Yeah. But I, was, I spent about 40 minutes sitting under these oaks. It's absolutely magical. And because I'm from Europe, I haven't seen an oak for a while. And there's something... Oh, they're just magical. But there's different plants here, is what I'm saying, to those that we have in Sydney. Well, of course, because the climate here is different. In some ways, we're luckier in Melbourne. We can probably grow a wider suite of species than Sydney can without too much effort. But here there's a huge number of different plants and trees here. Yeah, yeah. this, is, this has got thousands and thousands of different species. And this is partly because of our climate, but it's also because of the good management of this site and its origins, because... These were really important culturally because they let people see what would grow when they weren't quite sure. There's a mixture of exotic and native plants. Uh, some of the native plants that were planted here were planted to see if they would do well elsewhere. And so these days, many people come to a botanic garden expecting beauty. 
but there was much more expected of them uh, in the late 1800s through the early part of the 1900s. People were interested in the rates of growth, which plants would be successful. And of course, there was a whole economy uh, that was uh, related to some of these plants or the prospects of some of these plants. So in gardens uh, right around Victoria and New South Wales, for example, some of the piner species that were tried were tried to see how they'd go and they were being looked at from a timber production point of view. Some did well, some didn't. And of course, ultimately, it was the Pinus radiata that won the competition. Which is? Well, they've been planted in plantations all around the world. And some of your listeners will be appalled to think that Pinus radiata has come up because they can be weedy. Uh, Lots of people don't like them. But back in the 1800s and early 1900s, timber was almost like the oil and natural gas of today. So its economic importance was absolutely crucial. But Greg, as a person who loves trees, doesn't that break your heart a bit? I can't stand thinking about trees being cut down and and also all the trees that we've lost. Yeah, so look, trees are lost and and some of the trees have been inappropriately planted. As an applied scientist, I'm not opposed to trees being manipulated for the right reasons. And sometimes, for example, in our cities, trees definitely reach a point where they're hazardous or dangerous and have to be removed. And you've got to get that balance right. And one of the things that people sort of expect of someone like me, I think, is that I'll get out there and I'll defend every tree. Well, no, I won't. That's me, Greg. No, I won't. What I'll do is I'll go out and have a look at a tree and I'll judge the merits of that tree because one of the things that's on my mind is we've had the benefits of some great trees. And if a, if a tree has reached the end of its life or it's dangerous, then what we should be doing is removing it replacing it with a great specimen so that a future generation will have what we've had. So uh, in that sense, not every tree is sacrosanct, but many trees should be and some are. So you've got to sort of develop that approach to how do I manage some of these complex situations? And sometimes the answers are not simple. Sometimes in our complex societies, you're going to face very complex decisions and there are not going to be win-win-win situations. But I think most of the time, we can make sure that we do the right thing by the trees and by the environment and by our society. We're in the middle of the garden now and some of the the trees that are growing around us are the products of those fads and fashions that we talked about earlier. And these trees here are the Araucarias. There are several species. Bunya bunya pine is probably one that's well known. It looks a bit like the Woolamai pine. So these tend to be quite dramatic trees because they have very often a, a very striking symmetry almost like pyramids or cones. They have a a really regulated branching system uh, that looks like a bit like spokes on the wheel. They're certainly uh, charismatic and they do have very large cones. And some of the cones on some of the Araucaria species can be up to a couple of kilos, three kilos. And when they fall, you don't want to be under them because they're being dropped from a maybe 20 metres high. How tall would you say this specimen we're looking at? Because on the way to meet you, I stopped and gazed up at it and I was like, that is incredible. But you said it was one of the younger ones. Yeah, it's one of the younger ones. It's not that tall. Um, These ones are probably coming in at about uh, 20 metres. Uh, They'll get up to about 30 metres under good conditions. If people are going to grow them at home, give them plenty of space because they are a very good tree as long as they've got a bit of space for their root system. And they can get as tall as 26 to 30 metres. 
Greg, I'm going to ask you to tell us the story of the Wollamai pine. The Wollamai is one of those fascinating plants. Again, we've come back to fads and fashions and we're looking at the Araucaria group. Wollamai are part of that group. They hadn't been seen for literally millions of years and then someone discovered uh, some living fossils as it were, about 20 years ago in the Willamai National Park in New South Wales. And now here we are standing amongst uh, several uh, beautiful specimens. They're they're growing very fast. Uh, A couple of things to note, they can get very big. So they can get up to 30 metres. They could be a big tree, so watch where you plant them. And also you might notice that they tend to sort of shoot from the base. You want to keep those shoots in, in trim. And sometimes they produce two stems. And you don't want two stems, you want a single stem on them because if they have two stems, then the tree can split apart. So these young ones are going really well. uh, And you'll also notice they've got plenty of cones on them, which tells you that they're doing all the right things in this current position. But aren't these extremely significant because of their very, very ancient roots, not literal roots? They're a connection with the past. They're significant um, the same way that the ginkgo is significant. So if you think about it, the two trees that are probably best known as living fossils are the ginkgo, which has been widely planted since ginkgo from China was thought to be extinct, uh, is in the fossil record for Australian plants, but of course hasn't been seen here for over 15 million years. But really great plants. And now we've got the Wollamai pine has joined them. And I think they're symbolic because they give us a link going back hundreds of millions of years. And they show us just how resilient plants can be. And I think at this present time, knowing that plants are resilient in the face of climate change is something that we should be sort of looking towards. It gives us some optimism about the future. (laughs) We just stopped at a ginkgo. This, of course, is the other famous living fossil, and this one is called ginkgo biloba. It's the only species, and you can see why it's called biloba, because of that little cleft in the leaf. It's got a splendid leaf, and it's called the maidenhair tree because people thought that this leaf looked like a big maidenhair fern, you know, the ones that perhaps your grandmother kept. Uh, And they're really quite a robust tree. So all in all, you know, they they do very well. You've got to be a little bit careful with the ginkgo because there's a male tree and a female tree. And the female tree, when it produces its reproductive structure, can be very malodorous stinks to high heavens yes it stinks so much that people can be actually made sick by the smell so you don't plant it near the entrance to a building Greg, I discovered your work Googling because I'd been watching all this footage after Storm Eunice in the UK. There were people taking iPhone films of trees falling over. There were 150 trees that came down in London Royal Parks. But there was one that was in Bood in Cornwall and it was, they describe it as the triangle tree. And I was like, is that the type of tree? But no, it was just a giant tree in an intersection of roads, hence the triangle tree huge and very beloved and someone happened to be filming when it came down and it was awful watching this huge giant smash down and I got really sad and then I googled why do trees come down in wind and I found you yes maybe you could just tell us why okay well trees come down in in strong winds usually in storms for two major reasons one is you get a lot of rain and the soil becomes very wet and wet soil has much lower strength, so it doesn't bind with the roots. And then if you've got strong winds, 
we get what's called wind throw, where the whole tree starts to fall because the roots are actually pulled out of the soil by the wind. The soil is not strong enough to hold them and the whole tree collapses. And it is an amazing thing to see because several things sort of hit you at once. You don't expect big trees to fall because they're so large. You get that sense of scale. Everything else might go, but they'll be okay. When they do fall, the weights can be massive. You could be having something between 50 and about 75 tonnes coming down. And when that comes down and hits the surface of the earth, it really makes a noise. To me, it's heartbreaking apart from anything else because of the history and the age, how long that tree in Bood, for example, had been there. I can't remember now, but there are trees that were there for hundreds of years that have suddenly failed to withstand the winds or the storms, but they've met storms before. And, And what's happening is that as part of climate change, storms are becoming more frequent the wind speeds are becoming stronger. One of the things that happens with global warming is people say, oh, temperature's warm, but that all that means is there's more energy in the system. So that means that when you get storms, they're going to be fiercer, they're going to be stronger. And the other thing that happens and can happen is that if winds come from a different direction than they're used to, big old trees will fail. So if you look at a normal tree just growing out in, in, in an open space, about 60% of its root system will be on the windward side. And, and so it'll be very strong and it'll be able to withstand winds from that direction. Now, of course, if you get a wind from the opposite direction, then the tree hasn't acclimatised to that. Its roots haven't developed and it may fail. Obviously, everyone knows that climate change can cause more extreme weather events, more frequent, but also more unpredictable. And this idea, which I hadn't heard until I heard your work, Greg, about the the winds changing direction. So it's almost like the trees not used to this. They've got their roots in place, buffeting the winds they used to have to deal with, but now conditions are changing. Yeah, that's right. And some of the trees will be blown over by these storms. Other trees, if the winds come from those new directions often enough, they will develop the roots because they're still living and responsive. So people can become quite fearful. They think every tree is going to blow over, but it's not. And very often the trees that do blow over have had things done to their root system. So for example, you mentioned the tree in the triangle. I bet its roots have been cut several times for roadworks. Um, that sort of stuff happens. And also the other thing that can happen is other trees that were once protecting a big old tree are removed for various reasons. And the roots talk, we know this because everyone now has watched that lovely film about mycelium. Is it called Fungi? Yeah, yep. But everyone's watched that now. So we all know that trees are talking to each other under the ground. Their roots are in connection. There's certainly connections between many tree roots and the fungal connections between them are really quite intricate and have been, we've known about those for a long time. And so, yeah, I mean, trees are very sophisticated organisms. And if you think about them, anything that's as big and long lived as a tree has to have a sophisticated biology. Okay, I've always wondered this. If we look at a tree with a vast canopy, does that mean the roots underneath are in balance, just as wide, just as big? Often wider. So if you've got a really big tree that you judge from above the ground, there has to be a large root system below the ground. Now, that root system may not be, it's not a mirror image Mm -hmm. because very often root systems for trees are relatively shallow but it will be very extensive. Some trees will have root systems that extend three to ten times their canopy. 
in Sydney, we were talking about this before, there are glorious and many, many of them are Moreton Bay figs and they have these buttress roots that are like huge. You know, the roots can be as high as me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're great. I mean, with the uh, the Moreton Bay fig, you're looking at a tree that in many ways is a typical rainforest tree. And those great big buttress roots uh, partly stabilise the tree, uh, but they also provide a great surface area for oxygen. So it's more than just a simple, I told you I was a plant mechanic. It's not just the, the obvious thing. Everyone says, oh, it's got those big roots to keep it up. Yes, it has, but it's also got those big roots because they increase the surface area, which means that the roots can get more oxygen because it's easier to get oxygen from air than it is from soil. And, and those Moreton Bay figs are splendid trees. They were planted very widely right along the east coast because they did well. They grew quite rapidly. And in Sydney, you've got lots of them. You've got a lot more of them in Sydney than we have here in Melbourne. We've got good ones, but not as big. All right. We're sitting in this amazing part of Melbourne Botanical Gardens, which has something like 40 oaks planted throughout it from all different countries. And some of them are huge. Yes, They're here because people were interested in oaks for a whole range of reasons. And it's partly to do with the uh, English colonisation, obviously. Oaks had been really, really important uh, in Britain. Uh, You you know about their use in boat building and for um, homes and so on. So it was natural that people would be interested to see how would oaks grow. And also, if you think about the late 1800s, sort of 1860 through to uh, 1900, There was lots of interest in the botanical aspect of what was happening, the diversity of plants. The Europeans had been exposed to a a range of species that they never dreamed existed from uh, the Southern Hemisphere, for example. And so in a garden like this, uh, you wanted to trial things. And originally, uh, Melbourne Botanic Gardens wasn't this beautiful sort of landscape garden that you see today. It was a billabong. Well, well, it was built on on the billabong. And uh, the original uh, director of the Botanic Gardens, uh, the Baron Ferdinand von Mueller, he planted things in nice rows. He was looking basically at plantations so people could come and they could look at different species of the same genus. Oh, God, order, so much order. order right? Very, very much so. But not for beauty. No, for no, purely functional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wanted to know what they were, how they would grow, what would grow better. This was really important to the Victorian, the colonial uh, economy. And so these people were taken very, very seriously. And the people of Melbourne said, well, look, that's all very well. That's very scientific. It doesn't look very good. And Guilfoyle came here and he moved plants around. Some of the plants that you see here, which were already 15, 20 metres high, were actually transplanted using horses and drays. So the interest in botany was absolutely profound in a city of that era that regarded itself as progressive. What about what was lost by the colonial plantings coming here? Certainly in places like this, some of the sites were cleared. We lost a lot of native species. There are some remnants still left in these gardens. So some of the river red gums go back to that pre-colonial era. And people like von Mueller were incredibly interested in the native vegetation as well. So you don't want to think of these people as being European exotic snobs, so to speak. He was interested in plants of wherever they came from. It didn't matter whether they were Australian or European or South American or African. He was interested. All right. I want to come back to the red gums at the end. But we were talking before about how I came to you because I'd looked at what was happening 
I mean, there's a storm, a catastrophic storm every 10 seconds, it feels like. That was February 17, around then, when Storm Eunice hit the UK and I was worrying about my family and watching all this stuff happen. Fast forward less than a month and we've now got catastrophic floods in northern New South Wales. I live in Sydney, which has not been impacted in the same way. And for international listeners, we are currently in Melbourne, which is in Victoria, which is further south. But floods happening in Queensland and the northern rivers part of northern New South Wales are unbelievable. And the human cost is being counted. You know, people have died, people are losing their houses. I'm worried about the animals. But Greg, I haven't heard yet. And I wonder if we even will anyone talk about the trees. No, not really. Trees are at the front line of the flood line because they're, they're so close to the, um, the rivers and waterways. And so they really do bear the brunt of the floods. And when I say they bear the brunt, what happens with trees depends on where the trees are and how strong the floodwaters are. So, for example, many of the trees, a flood is a fleeting experience. If you're going to live for 500 or 600 years, a couple of weeks of flooding is not a big deal. But it's a big deal for the humans that have to put up with it. So some of our river red gums, for example, will tolerate nine months of flooding and they'll be fine. Uh, Something like an exotic elm might tolerate a couple of weeks of flooding, you know, three weeks, four weeks, something of that sort. And and they'll, they'll be fine. But other trees will be right on the edge of the river. The river will erode the river bank and the tree will fall into the river. It'll come bobbing along under these massive water flows like a little cork. It'll weigh 40, 50 tonnes. It'll be a battering ram. It'll hit other trees and it might dislodge those. I've got a long-term worry that when these things happen, people who don't understand how trees work just think, well, I don't want to live near trees. They're dangerous. They might smash my property. I want them gone. Yeah. And look, that's a knee-jerk reaction. And unfortunately, it happens too often. So for example, it happens after bushfires. It happens after floods. It happens after road accidents. And this just shows you that many city dwellers in particular have lost contact with the natural environment. And they fail to appreciate that without plants, life like ours, human life, has no future. So we are here because of the plant ecosystems that support us. And if we forget that, then we put our civilization and the future of civilizations at risk. And and you, you have to appreciate this. Climate change is going to reinforce this rapidly and very seriously with us. And one of the things, for example, you might be thinking uh, two years ago of bushfires. So people cleared a whole lot of trees. Well, that's fine. But if you live on a steep slope and you've cleared all the trees, you can have landslides. And those landslides will probably do more damage than any bushfire would, although bushfire is very serious. Another thing about this is that in heat waves, um, vegetation cools. Now, the biggest killers of human beings of any natural phenomenon are heat waves. So in the Black Saturday fires that hit Victoria in 2009, 173 people killed by the fire, 374 by the heat wave. So many more. So when people look at their houses, streets in cities and say, ah, those trees could fall in a storm, let's get rid of them. They're basically saying we don't want trees, therefore we're going to have lots of deaths. Because we need to do more to get people to understand how these ecosystems work and the complexity and beauty behind some mechanics, if you like, of nature. But 
we do also have so many people who fall in love with trees and who want to protect them and work to protect them, but also who mourn them when they're gone. I'm going to ask you, Greg, to walk with me. We'll walk and talk. All right, so just over here is the site, and actually it's still here, of a famous and much-loved white oak yes. that fell or died in 2019 in December, just before Christmas, didn't it? It did. And, and people do love this site, and they love this tree, because it's one of the great sites for picnics. And so many people felt they had a connection to the tree. And, and look, this is one of those things where... The tree had uh, a particular structure that at some stage everybody thought this is going to fall apart one day. Really? And it did, yeah. This is part of what oaks do. This is part of what trees do. As they get older, bits sort of collapse and fall away. And so you're, you're expecting these sorts of things to happen. But then you've got to replace it. And this is part of renewal. And I think people have got to recognise that trees are not here forever even if they're ancient, uh, and sometimes you have to replace them. And the replacements are growing here, as you can see. So we're looking at the fallen tree here that's been laid out in quite, I think, a beautiful way. There's a, a design behind what's been done here, and there's a young replacement tree coming up in amongst the uh, fallen branches, and in 50 years, we'll have a good tree, a oh, really good tree. There's a tree planted here. Yeah. yeah. Ah, so, yeah. so what happens in, in Australia, and, and people might find this hard to believe, but the oaks grow very fast here. So if you've come from, as you have from the UK, uh, the oaks here will look to be about the same size as a 300 to 400 year old oak. Because it's so hot and wet. Well, and they're just freaking out, like, okay, we're not used to this, we're going to get bigger. It's because we have a really terrific growing season. So in Melbourne, we have a growing season for oaks that probably starts in September, goes through to late March. So we've got almost six months of growth. Ah. Whereas in the UK, with your fierce winters, you might only get uh, 12 weeks of growth out of them. So they grow very, very well here. Now, some people have thought, well, if they grow that well, they won't necessarily live as long. That doesn't seem to be the case, but of course we don't know because we haven't been growing them here for long enough. So we've stopped at the site of the amazing white oak that is huge. It's more than three metres in girth. Yes. It was, I forget how tall, but very tall. But when it came down, people were gutted. And then this lovely thing happened. So a Melbourne furniture maker, his name is Alistair Bowl, and one of the arborists from the garden decided that they would allow the tree to keep giving and that's a quote from the the furniture guy Alistair and basically the way it had fallen reminded them or made them think of of seating and they have left it where it fell maybe moved it around a bit I don't know but they've made it into this really very gorgeous bench system it's an organic set of seats and benches. I'm sitting on one now, and as you probably noticed, I just did it naturally. And people do. They'll just walk up and they'll sit on wherever they like. And it's terrific. And this will be here for decades, and then it will start to decay mm. uh, and, and rot away as it should. And actually, Greg, it made me think, and I'm sure that's what they thought, when trees fall in the forest or in the bush, that's what people do with them, don't they? They use them and sit on them and... Yeah, and recycle them, yeah. And so it's just part of the natural cycle of things. And look, the other good thing about the current system is that quite often if an unusual tree falls, then the timber will be salvaged and they'll make some terrific furniture out of it. 
And then the story continues, can, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I find it really sad, though, when I see... When I first heard of this tree dying, I felt it was devastating. But actually, now when I see it, I think it's kind of beautiful. It is beautiful. And, and I think this is, again, this is to remind people, what you've got is really valuable. Everything comes to an end. Trees can live for centuries, some for millennia, but eventually they will meet their demise. But you've got to make sure that the conditions are right for a replacement. And uh, one of the things that we've noticed as we've come through the gardens today is that there are lots of young trees. Now, what what happens in lots of uh, botanic gardens is that they were established uh, in Australia anyway, say, say from about 1800 through to about 1920. And they were established quickly, lots of trees, similar age, all of that sort of thing. And then not much happened for another 30 or 40 years. And then you started to get the situation where, oh, that tree is not going to last and we haven't got a replacement. So the idea of replacing your canopy and replacing your collection is really strong. And I really do admire the management of the botanic gardens here for having such an active replacement program. When a tree dies its natural death even if that's sped up by climate change for example I think we can understand that's the cycle of life but when someone kills a tree on purpose I mean I'm too cross to even ask you the question but I'm going to ask you it because I think it's such an important one even if we weren't here but we are at the site of or we're going to walk over there the site of the separation tree which has now died. Would you tell us the story of what the separation tree was, what it represents and what happened to it? Yeah, the separation tree had a special significance here in the garden and for the people of Victoria because this is where the population of Melbourne and in some ways Victoria celebrated when Victoria became a separate colony from New South Wales. Now, this was a big deal and it it basically meant that the people would be able to govern themselves. And they met under this separation tree to celebrate this historic occasion. The tree had been growing there for a long time and then it was vandalised. That tree was actually way predating these gardens or 1850 oh, yes. when they met under yeah, it. You know, it was an old, how it was old was it? 400 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. It was an old, it was an old river red gum then, uh, certainly predated colonial times and had survived the early ravages of the landscape as Melbourne developed. And so it had that special sort of historic connection and it was vandalised. Nobody really knows why, but luckily a replacement tree had already been planted. What did they do to it? So they ring-barked They ring-barked it. What it, is yeah. that? Ring-barking is where someone comes through with a hatchet and they take off a, a great slab of the bark low down near the trunk and eventually what that does is starve the root system. And when the root system starves, it dies and the tree dies. Malicious. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, people have been ring-barking trees for a long time. They used to use it as a method for clearing property. Not malicious in that sense then, but vandalism these days, you don't see it often, but when you do see it, it is sad, particularly of an old tree. But I have to say, the replacement is already quite substantial and several trees were propagated from that one. So there are a number of juvenile trees around. So it will continue and they they will be the progeny of the separation tree. So some speculation was made and no one was able to prove it and no one was ever caught that potentially it was political. And I read an op-ed that you wrote in the conversation about why... I mean, I was at, that's, I'd written that as my list of questions. Why, 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 why would anyone hurt a tree on purpose? And of course, the reasons are 
the familiar, sadly, because it blocks my view or because I want to build an extension on my flashy house and I don't respect nature. But then there are these other reasons which are more, perhaps more rare, but also more difficult to get your head around. And in this case, there was some suggestion that it was political, that potentially that tree represented colonialism and people didn't like it. That could well have been, but that that is speculation because we, we don't actually know why. And I'm not going to ascribe a political motive if there wasn't one, because I, I don't think it's productive to, to sort of speculate in that way. I do know that lots of trees are removed for the other reasons that you mentioned, just because they shed, uh, just because they shed leaves. As and in they're annoying because they, they, they fall just annoy on your car. People, yeah, they yeah. fall on their driveway, they fall in their swimming pool. I know that they're removed and, and poisoned because of access to views, all of those sorts of things. And, and the, really, the thing that really saddens me about that is incredibly short-sighted. But very often, if the people who wanted a better view uh, had talked to some of the arborists, they could have had their view and had the tree. And in relation to shedding, in Melbourne, for example, uh, one of the cases uh, that went to court, the magistrate said, look, get a pool cover and keep the tree. Common sense prevailed. So quite often, people become very, very annoyed over very minor things and they don't explore the opportunities that are open them to compromise. Greg, let's walk and try and make people get excited about trees so that they will protect them. Why did you become a tree, I'm going to say protector, but maybe the question isn't that. When did you become fascinated by trees? Were you a kid? Yes, I liked trees as a kid, but I re- my interest was really uh, sort of focused when I studied botany at the university. I was taught by some terrific uh, men and women, and they encouraged me to look at trees uh, and to understand them. And so I've been pretty much interested in them ever since. They inspired me to, to work out how they worked, to know what they were doing and why they were doing things. So that in some ways, I wanted to be able to explain to people the trees weren't mysterious. They weren't, uh, they were awesome, and they didn't do things out of spite or capriciously. They did things because that was a logical, uh, scientific thing for a tree to do. All right, what's your favourite tree? Is that even a question that someone like you can answer? We did begin this interview talking about how individual trees can matter to individuals. Yes, it depends where I am, and it depends on the day. I do have a great fondness for the river red gum, and in fact, because I'm so familiar with it, it's very important to me. I love messmate stringy bark, which is another eucalypt, because I've done a lot of research on it. Messmate stringy bark is just just a gum tree for lots of people, but it's a, a really tough plant. It, it, it tolerates fire, it copes with stress brilliantly, has beautiful timber from which you can make great floors, uh, great furniture, uh, and I've done some of that work. I've made floors with Have that timber. Oh, yeah, 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 with that timber. And it's just a, I think it's for people in Victoria and New South Wales, it's a really common and important species. It was important to the Aboriginal people. I just think it's a great, great tree. I do like the golden elm that's on the corner of the road just near the Botanic Gardens. Let's finish on that because it's such a nice story. So the golden elm is a great tree in Melbourne. It grows on one of the uh, corner of one of the intersections of a major road, uh, Punt Road, and the road that runs past the Botanic Gardens here. And because it's, it's such a big tree, it has a, a beautiful canopy, it, all of the people who drive by it sort of know it. And they've become custodians of that tree. And so if they see 
anything that's likely to impinge on that tree, there'll be a reaction. So if you're going to do road works, you tell everyone the tree is okay. If you're going to do works with power lines, you tell everyone the tree is going to be okay. And, and what this reminds you of, of course, is that people are driving past trees very often. They don't even notice them, but every so often one will capture their imagination. Yeah. And as soon as you've got that public interest, those people turn from just being ordinary citizens to custodians of the tree. You don't have to own it to be a custodian. I said we we're going to finish on that, but I was lying. We're going to finish on the Register of Significant Trees. So would you believe that I love trees and I didn't know that this was a thing until maybe two years ago. But what a beautiful thing. What is a register of significant trees and what happens here with that? Okay. Well, the register of significant trees in Victoria uh, comes from through the National Trust and it has a, a tradition of protecting cultural heritage, if you like. And they noticed back in the 1980s that they were protecting houses and old bridges and all of that sort of stuff, but the trees were disappearing. So they thought, well, we should do something about it. And what they decided to do was to create a list of all of the good, great trees that, that they knew of, the significant trees. And they might have been significant because they were old or big, or they had a connection with someone important, or they were important to the Indigenous people or to the colonial people. And so they just started to take note of where they were. And the argument was, if you didn't know what you had, you couldn't protect it. If you didn't know what you had and where it was, you couldn't protect it. Now, our register is just a list. It now has well over 2,000, nearly 3,000 trees on it or specimens, species, about 30,000 trees, in fact. Wow. But you've for a long time worked officially with that. Yeah, yeah. I've been the chair for a long time and on the committee. Uh, look, we're all volunteers. Our list doesn't have any legal status, so it doesn't mean that a tree can't be dealt with or removed. But what we've found is that over the years of the nearly 3,000 specimens that we've put onto the register, only about seven have been cleared for development. So what we've done is we've negotiated with developers to protect trees that are important. Uh, the general public has supported our call for protection. And so we've been quite active in that regard. It's to me a very simple and yet hugely important point that if we don't know what what we're dealing with, we won't be able to protect it. If we don't have the list, we don't know where things were or are That's in order right. to get behind protecting them for the future. It's pretty elementary, but actually, I mean, before 1981, there was no such thing. That's right. And, and the other thing about this list is we, we tend to look at the best trees, the ones that are of state, which basically means they're of national significance. We also look at regional. So we may have better trees, but these are really good trees in the various regions of Victoria. Now, other states also have their registers now, and the National Trust has put those registers together. So you can get a pretty fair idea of what things are. But importantly, we also want local governments to have their register of locally significant trees. Because very often what happens during a development is that a significant tree to the locals has no protection. So lots of councils in Victoria now are compiling locally significant tree registers or lists, and they protect them under their planning legislation. So, Greg, do you think we should look at trees as cultural heritage, not just as part of the natural world that matters? Oh, yes. I mean, they have to be part of our cultural heritage because they're part of our culture. As human beings, we may think we don't need trees, but that's not the way it works. 
we need trees for our psychological, for our mental health, for our physical health and well-being. And the information that now relates human health to the presence of trees and green space is enormous. There's a huge amount of data. So we may not even realise how important the vegetation growing around us, and particularly the trees, is to our well-being. Look, I make sure that I'm in the presence of good trees virtually every day. So I recognise, and I have recognised for a long time, that they're important to what I do professionally, but they're also important to me as an individual in terms of my health and well-being. So I, I go out of my way to go and uh, visit trees, to see do trees. You? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally going physically to check in. Yeah, yeah, and and there are certain trees. I mean, obviously, I have a special feeling for the many trees I've planted. How many? Oh, hundreds, 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 and not thousands like some. You know, some of the rural community have, have planted thousands. I've planted hundreds, and even in my own garden, I've got trees that I have a special fondness for. You know, the ones that perhaps my son said, "What's that?" And I've told him that's the fruit from a plane tree. What's that? Well, we'll grow it and see. So we grew it and we saw. So th those trees have a special place. But I also, as I've mentioned, live near a river. There's lots of river red gums growing along that river. I visit them several times a week. I'm very interested in their health and well-being. And of course, they've educated me a great deal. So uh, I've seen the cycles that they go through and how resilient they are. And it's really made me appreciate how complex they are and how important their reaction with the uh, climate, the soils and the environment around them is. Have trees made you a better person? Yes, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. My, the trees and family definitely made me a better person. I think I've been a very lucky person. I made a, a brilliant decision when I asked my wife to marry me and I think I was equally lucky in some ways that I ended up in a profession that involved trees because you don't exactly know where life is going to take you. But from my perspective, good family, lots of trees around, I've done very well. I've been very lucky. How might we become better communities by, right now, after listening to this, going to do something to look after the trees in our world? Look, the, the thing that people have got to do, first of all, they've got to look after the trees they've got. You've got to look after what we've got. In most Australian cities, and this is not just the big cities, but most Australian cities, regional or otherwise, we're losing about 1% of our tree canopy cover per year. So we're actually losing more trees than we're planting at the present time, despite all of the interest in the, the environment and climate change. So you've got to look after what you've got and we have to plant more. We don't have an option. If we want a sustainable and livable future in our cities, major cities, regional cities and country towns, we have to plant more trees. We don't have an option. And so I would urge people to look after what you've got and get out and support planting. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. My friends all feel that I'm carrying us down.
I love you, because I love you, because I love you. Mm -hmm.